Well, if you would turn to Genesis uh, 10 and 11, we're going to review briefly. After Ryan taking you through the exciting event of the Tower of Babel last week, if you doze off a little tonight, I will not hold it against you at all as we uh, come back to some, some of the genealogies and... um, in Genesis 9.19, uh, the statement was made about Noah's three sons that after them all the, or during their time, all the earth was dispersed. And that's the event of the Tower of Babel, the dispersion of the nations. And in Genesis um, 10, we were looking at the various genealogies that were focused on the three sons of Noah, <clears throat> focused more on the nations that came from them rather than on the individuals that came, although they were included as well. And so you remember there was Japheth, there was Ham, and there was Shem. And I just want to go back to a portion of the genealogy of Shem. It's in in Genesis 10, 21, because we'll begin to see the overlap with what we're going to do tonight. And Genesis 10, 21, to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. <clears throat> the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And then it continues through the rest of the chapter. So after the story of the Tower of Babel, the genealogy picks it up again and repeats a little bit. Uh, We're going to be looking at um, beginning uh, from 10 to 26 first. There's two parts. Uh, Some of your Bibles have headings. Uh, 10 to 26 is the lineage of Shem. And it's focused more on the individuals, and it's also being more narrowed. It's not nations that are scattered throughout the world. It's focusing more uh, specifically on the line of Abram, because that's where all of this is heading. It's drawing us to bring up Abram, because his story really takes off in chapter 12, and he's the key person in the covenantal plan of God. The second part, which we'll get to from verses 27 to the end, are the the lineage and the descendants of Terah, who was Abram's father, to give us a sense of where all this is heading to. And so Genesis 10 is part of the other genealogies. Genesis 11 stands on its own. And the reason it does is because Moses is trying to give us uh, the, the focus on the lineage of Abram. He wants us to see where they came from, where they went. He wants us to get a sense of who was involved in, all, in, in that, that line coming down to Abram. So let me read this section in 10 through 26, and then we'll come back and talk about a few of the uh, individuals in it. <clears throat> These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered 
Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Riu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Riu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Riu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sereg. And, uh, and Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. <clears throat> when Sarag had lived th- 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor, Nahor lived after he fathered Terah nine, 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So you have this section beginning with that familiar phrase, these are the generations. It's the one Hebrew word, toledot. And it's a receipt at about 11 times in the book of Genesis. It's a heading for a genealogy or an order that's going to come uh, and and be described. So we have here the descendants of Shem to finish off his um, generations. And there's four names that are repeated from Genesis 10. The first, Arpachshad. And as we noted last time, he is considered to be the uh, father of the Chaldeans, which is logical and reasonable because that's where Abraham, Abram and his family came from Ur of the Chaldees in the kind of far southeastern portion of, of what we know of as of, uh, Iraq, but in <clears throat> ancient Babylon in that region of the, uh, of the world. And uh, the second son was Shelah. He becomes significant because uh, he um, fathered Eber, and Eber was the man from whom the Hebrews got their name. So in a sense, he's the father of the Hebrew people. And that name goes with the Abram and his descendants. <clears throat> and then uh, Eber is the father of Peleg. And in Genesis 10, it told us it was during his life that the earth was divided. The Tower of Babel took place and the nations were scattered Throughout the world. And then we have some other sons, Ryu, Sarag, Nahor, and Terah. And these last names in particular are indicators of the region which the family lived in and uh, dwelt for a significant amount of time in the region of Mesopotamia. Uh, it's the Fertile Crescent. I put the map up here, which is practically useless to all of you in the back. <clears throat> but uh, and those listening on the audio won't have any sense of it, but Ur of the Chaldees is over here. And the Fertile Crescent is this 
kind of curved area that goes north and down into the land of Canaan. You would never go across Arabia if you were traveling because it's barren wilderness. Uh, Even armies didn't go from there. That's why when you read in the Old Testament, Israel's being invaded from the north. Well, they had to because they wouldn't have come from the east. But at any rate, uh, this fertile crescent, some of the towns, uh, the, the town that Abram and his family are going to move to is Haran after Ur before they go down to Canaan. So you can find that map in your Bibles if you have a study Bible or um, a Bible with maps in the back of it. But some of the names in the Mesopotamian area come from these descendants of Shem. Uh, There's one, um, a city in Haran or near Haran named Nahor. Uh, That's one of the names in our list. There's another uh, name, there's another city by the name of, uh, currently by the name of Serugi. And you can see that it kind of is a derivative of Sarag, the uh, son of Riu. There's also a uh, documents in Assyria that give the name of a site named Til-Turahi, which linguistically has a connection to Terah, the father of of Abraham. And um, Terah has three sons, and they're given to us there, uh, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, or Haran. Um, And Abram wasn't the firstborn. Probably Haran was the firstborn. He He died while they were still in Ur. But Abraham was the most important of those three sons, because out of him, the people of Israel would come. And so the point of Moses giving us all this information of these names is to help us appreciate um, the location where they were coming from and where they traveled on their way to the land of Canaan. Now, just as an aside, there are different questions about these genealogies and the ages and so forth that I am not going to go over with you. And um, I don't know that I could really do it adequately to begin with, but if you're really interested in that, if that really is something that fascinates you, uh, a couple good sources to read would be James Boyce's sermon on this chapter uh, in his commentary on Genesis, and also um, Richard Phillips, his commentary on Genesis They both do a really wonderful job in in trying to point up some of the discrepancies or possible discrepancies in the genealogies and good answers for them. So don't let anybody tell you there's a bunch of mistakes in the Bible because there are good reasons for some of the different things that people uh, find fault with in this passage. So we have that section on the generations of Shem. And then we have the next section, which are the generations of Terah. Again, that same word, that same heading. And I'm going to take this in a few different pieces rather than read it all at once. Uh, So we, we, we begin with the birth and location of Abram, where he begins. So verse 27 says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. 
Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of, the, of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So here we have the origin of, of uh, Terah's family, his, uh, the three sons that he had. Lot is mentioned mainly to anticipate the fact that he will eventually travel with Abram to Canaan, to the land of Canaan. So Moses is kind of laying out some of these bits of information to help us uh, anticipate some of the stories that are going to come during um, the account of Abram's life and the patriarchs. Uh, Haran, his more like most likely Terah's oldest son, died uh, before his father with his family in Ur of the Chaldees. And um, Abram then was called by God while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land, God said, which I will show you. He doesn't tell him which land at that time, but he calls him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And in later portions of Genesis, and I won't have you turn, or the Bible, I won't have you turn there just yet. Uh, In Genesis 15, um, God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then in Nehemiah 9, when they're coming back from exile, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Now, as they're living in Ur of the Chaldees, we have to appreciate the fact that this is a pagan country. And they were most likely idolaters at that time. Uh, possibly worshiping the moon as one of their idols. And so we're not talking about people who were latently godly or um, Christian. These are pagans. And it's a miracle in a way. The miracle is that God would set his affection on Abram, an idolater, and call him to leave that he would be creating a great nation from him. And God somehow, we're not told how, somehow reached. Other passages will talk about how God appeared to to Abram at different times. We don't know how he called him, but God called Abram while he was still living in Ur of the Chaldees to leave and go to a land that he would show him. The second part of this list of generations and the information here are particularly the wives of Abram and Nahor. And so we pick that up at verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So both of these men take wives. Abram takes uh, his wife, Sarai, and Moses doesn't give her parentage. And so we don't know, you know, her origin at this point. But what we come to find out later on is that uh, she was Abram's half-sister. So keep your finger here, but turn to Genesis 20, verse 12, his I should say his half-sister. In one of the, in one of the accounts when G, Abram lies about Sarai being his wife, uh, in, in um, 
Genesis 20, verse 12, uh, he's trying to explain um, that he didn't really lie about Sarah being his sister. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Terah had a either Abram's mother died and he remarried or he took another wife or some circumstance, we don't know, but Terah had uh, other children by another woman and one of them was Sarai who became Abram's wife. And then we have Abram uh, has Sarai in the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah, the daughter of Haran. So Nahor... Uh, took the took a, uh, the married the daughter of his uh, his brother, and whether this was some way to preserve the lineage, um, it later on in, in Genesis when Judah's son is killed by God, he tells his next son, "Now you go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise raise up offspring for your your brother." And later on in the law, there will be. A, a, a statute of, called Liberite marriage where a brother was to raise up children for his brother who dies with his uh, widow. So at any rate, Nahor takes the daughter of his deceased brother, Haran. And um, what's significant about this little bit of biographical information that we have here is that uh, it anticipates the fact that Rebecca, <clears throat> the future bride of Isaac, is the granddaughter of Nahor and Milcah. And so turn to Genesis 24, where we, we get this information. Genesis 24, Abram is sending his servant to get a wife for Isaac. And in, uh, in Genesis 24, verse 15... Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And that this information is repeated in verse 24, that she is, um, uh, she's, in verse 24, she said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. So, this bit of information uh, is anticipating some of the events that's going to come. <clears throat> We're not told what Sarai's uh, lineage is, but we are told what, Mil- uh, what Nahor's uh, married and uh, Milcah in anticipating the events of Rebekah becoming the wife of Isaac. The mention that Sarai is barren is something I want to come back to in just a moment. So the third piece of this second lineage is uh, the the move from Ur to Haran. Uh, Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died 
in Haran. <clears throat> One of the things I forgot to mention as we read through these genealogies here in this chapter, you, you see the, the, how the, the ages of the people is beginning to decrease significantly. So that while Shem lives about 600 years, uh, Nahor, not this Nahor, uh, the, the other Nahor, he, would, he only lived like 148 years. So in those different generations that represent the, the uh, ages are decreasing. So Terah and his family, except for uh, his son Nahor and Milcah, they seem to have stayed in Ur. But Terah and Abram and Lot... Uh, travel and some of the others with them. And Sarai, they travel to uh, from Ur of the Chaldees, not all the way to Canaan yet, but they stop at the, the top of the Fertile Crescent in this town named Haran. It's a, it's a significant town. It was a great commercial center. So it made sense to stop there for at least a little while. Um, Derek Kidner, he says, Tara probably made the decision to leave her and go up to Haran. Uh, his own motive was probably just prudence. He saw it as a way to advance the family, to move. But Abram already had his calling, and so that would have played into it a little bit. He perhaps was cooperating with what Abram wanted to do and going toward the land of, of Canaan. So we have Terah and his family coming up to Haran. They stay there. Uh, and Abram leaves, um, considering the age of Terah when he dies, probably when Terah was still alive. So Terah and any others with him stayed in Haran. And Abram will learn in the next chapter in the next chapters, Abram and Lot and some with him moved down to Canaan uh, sometime after this. So we think about this passage and all that's in it. And um, there's one thing that I am coming back to, which is what's in verse 30, that Sarah, his wife uh, was barren. She had no child. And what I think we begin to see in that statement, as brief as it is, is an anticipation of the wonder of grace. Because it's going to be a couple verses later that God is going to promise to Abram that I will make a great nation of you. Well, how can can God make a great nation of him? His wife can't even have a child. And while um, being barren, there are many godly women today that sometimes struggle with having children. Uh, In that day, thinking about barrenness was a sign perhaps of God not blessing and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. The calling God had given to them is is, um, a sign of God's blessing. Uh, Psalm 113 has that wonderful beautiful statement uh, that God gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. But the thing that we see from this point, Sarai was barren, is that this is a consistent problem in the life of God's people. And it's a, it's, it's a, 
an issue that they're going to have to deal with, a theme that they're going to to deal with. And what what it points us to is it becomes a means, the barren woman becomes the means of redemption. So here we have Sarai, who's barren. But then we have Rebecca, and here I'll have you turn to some passages. Turn to Genesis 25, 21. <clears throat> Isaac married Rebecca, and we're told in verse 21, and as Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Rebecca was barren. Abram's wife, Isaac's wife, and one of, one of uh, Jacob's wives. Turn to Genesis 29, 31. Genesis 29, 31. And we have here, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The wife that Jacob loved was barren. And we find this throughout the Old Testament, the different places in the Old Testament. You remember the story of the birth of Samson? It's in Judges chapter 13. Um, Since I'm having you turn, why don't you turn to Judges 13? And uh, we'll look at, read this. This is um, the account of the birth of Samson. But in Judges 13, verse 2, it says, There was a man, a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Similar words to uh, Sarah. God takes the barren woman and gives her a child and he becomes part of the covenantal working out of redemption. And we have in 1 Samuel, Hannah was barren and God blessed her prayer and gave her Samuel. And Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was barren and God gave her a son in her old age. So what is all this saying to us? I think what it's saying to us is God is bringing redemption out of this weakness, out of this apparent uh, um, issue, this, the antithesis is the, the, the apparent issue of God's displeasure in the barrenness. God turns it around to be the instrument of blessing. And not just merely blessing, but part of carrying on the line of the Messiah. Abraham's descendant, Isaac's descendant, Jacob's descendant. And down through the ages, God protected uh, his covenantal promise. And uh, just to have you turn to one other place and uh, turn to Isaiah 49. This is the prophecy of the return of Israel back to the land after their um, exile. Now, in Isaiah's day, it hadn't happened. He's predicting the happening of it. So the first is Isaiah 
49, verse 20, <clears throat> what God you does in, or what Isaiah does in the prophecy is he uses the idea of barrenness being overturned with fruitfulness for the people of Israel coming back to the land. So Isaiah 49, 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? You see, the people of Israel judged by God were barren. They were exiled. And yet God returned them to the land and poured out his blessing. And it was like the barrenness was overturned. And now they had more children than they could have room for. And then one other place in Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And there's again this prophecy of the enlargement of Israel and the blessing that God was going to pour out on them um, in overthrowing and turning over the barrenness to fruitfulness. So there are two thoughts to try to kind of boil all this down. There there are two thoughts I want you to think about um, from, from all this. You can say, how can you get all that out of a genealogy? Well, I don't know. But anyway... Here we are. There's two thoughts I want you to keep in mind from this whole theme. And that the first is God uses the weak. God takes those who the world thinks are not worth having around. God takes those who have no strength in themselves. God takes those who are weak. And without strength, and he brings his glory to be known in them. You remember Paul had to learn that lesson when he was given a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times for God to take it away. And what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God uses the weak. He uses you when you're weak. He takes you in your frailty and demonstrates his glory. Because it would never happen except without him. And he reveals himself in you and to you through your weakness. And so Sarai being barren is a pointer to the fact that God's going to use someone who is weak to bring his glory and make his glory known. And the second thought that I want you to think about, uh, particularly coming out of this idea of her barrenness yet being overturned, is that God keeps his promises even when the faith of men fails. That's so important. It's something we're going to see over and over and over again in Abram's life and even in the life of the people of 
of God. Adam and Eve uh, lost their faith in the promises of God, even though they had all the advantages. They didn't have the inclination to sin. They had all the advantages of the, and the resources. They had all the strength that they possibly can ha- could have, but their faith failed and they turned against God. But God is going to keep his promise. And he promises that he would send a son of the woman to overthrow the evil one. We're going to see it several times in Abram's life that his faith fails. And he's put himself and his wife in a position where they could do nothing to make sure God's promise of a son would be fulfilled. God had said to to Sarai, to Abram, in one year, your wife will have a son. And Abraham lied about his wife and they were in in a situation where they could do nothing about it. But God protects his promises. He keeps his promises. He protected Sarai. So she wasn't defiled. He made sure the promise was going to be fulfilled. So when you look at the weakness, when men's faith fails, God's faithfulness does not ever fail. And he will keep his promises. And so you and I, no matter how dark the days of history may get or have been, uh, God will never forsake his people. God will bring about his good covenant plan. And so you and I need to rest in him and find hope in him being our refuge, that he uses the weak and he keeps, our, he, he keeps his promises even when our faith fails. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this passage, even in, in the, the order of it and the information in it. And we thank you, Lord, for the reminder of how you work through weak and frail people, sinful people, to bring about the fulfillment of your covenant love and your promises. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to remember that you are at work in us even when we are weak and that your promises are yes and amen regardless of what struggles we may encounter. And may we have that hope to keep us going in the days ahead, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.